Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, your pediatric infectious disease doc, sometime researcher. And joining us, for reasons that will soon become clear, is friend of the show and farm o cyst Rangers. Hello, everyone. Hello again. <laughs> That's how she spelled it, not me. <laughs> Wow, sheesh. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to do the pharmacist of space. Oh, yes, no. Oh, of space. Yeah, you're oh, right. I should have. That was a good one, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but no, we are keeping things firmly down to earth this Aww. week. Yes, okay, farm, like F-A-R-M instead of P-H-A-R-M. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, get, I get it because the first topic, because it comes from flowers, like aha, yeah. mm. <laughs> and we're we're growing knowledge. We're not cowed by oh, no. criticism. <laughs> you're you're cultivating new. Oh, <laughs> not you too. At two, uh, Eleanor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you may be wondering why we have our pharmacist usually from space <laughs> on the show and that is as you may have guessed it's a drug related episode excellent mm-hmm. but the legal drugs well mostly legal mostly and, yeah yeah and not just any drugs i am going to uh, make a bold and possibly controversial claim these are seven drugs that change the world. I challenged you to come up with seven drugs that you think changed 
essentially the course of human history. So I want to see where our lists match up. Let's go by consensus. So I'll okay. name and you guys can tell me whether or not you have it on. But Eleanor, would you like to start us off as our expert? I trust you to tell me what you think, you know, in no particular order. Give me a drug that changed the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think we're going to have a lot of concordance on our, our list. you want me to list all seven of mine or just one of them? Whatever your preference, and we will take it from there. First one that comes to mind for me are the HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, otherwise known as statins. Ooh. Okay. Didn't make my list at all. Santosh? <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I, I'm going to say penicillin. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, so, sta so statins, Eleanor, why? I think those were, uh, or are a real game changer in the world of cardiovascular disease because, um, the first statin drug was actually approved in 1987, actually by Merck. Uh, and it was a drug called Lovastatin and, uh, or Mevacor was its brand name. Up until that time, basically, we knew uh, that heart disease was associated with certain types of diseases like high blood pressure or elevated cholesterol. Um, but with elevated cholesterol, there was actually a lot of controversy about whether if you could give a drug to reduce your cholesterol, would it actually reduce your risk of, of dying or having a heart attack? Uh, and there actually was a fair amount of controversy in the scientific community about whether it made any difference in terms of um, overall uh, overall cause of uh, causes of death. So this was actually very controversial. And then lo and behold, Merck, you know, enters the market with a brand new drug that works a brand new way compared to older drugs that were being used to lower cholesterol that were um, that were possibly you know not associated with reducing death. So Merck had to invest in a very large study to actually evaluate whether uh, lowering cholesterol with their drug that they approved called Zocor or Simvastatin. Oh, um, I remember that one. Yeah, so Mevacor it's, it's not around anymore. Then yeah, no, it's not it's not branded anymore. It's generic, but they test they actually evaluated Zocor, Simvastatin in a very large study uh, known as the 4S trial. And this was a, conducted in one of the parts of the world that has the highest amounts of heart disease and the highest average cholesterol levels. And that's in Scandinavia. Sounds like some serious science. That's serious what the 4S's science. are, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and uh, so lo and behold, the study finishes up and reports in 1994. And for the very first time, um, it was demonstrated that by lowering your cholesterol, you could risk, you could lower your risk, of, lower, lower the risk of total mortality in that study population, as well as the risk of, of heart attacks and other types of endpoints. So this was a real game changer in the world of uh, treating heart disease. And of course, then, you know, many other companies came out with their own statin drugs and studied these things much more, more widely and extensively. And now it's very well accepted that, that if you have elevated cholesterol, you uh, need to lower it. And more than likely, you're going to end up probably on a drug like a statin to reduce your risk of uh, dying from a heart attack. You know, I think that's a real game changer in terms of prolonging life. So that's why, that's why I think of those drugs as, uh, 
kind of near and dear to my heart. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is why we like her. <laughs> Someone who can uh, match puns with you. Yeah, that's that's a rare that's a rare human. <laughs> Gets me right in the aorta. I'm choking Aww. up. <laughs> I'll add in from the clinical side, and Josh, you know, because this is much more internal medicine than it is pediatric, but I, I know that from the a scientific basis, this really, when, when statins, HMG CoA reductase inhibitors, the, the long, crazy term, and which is what it actually does, and statins and everything, this was in the midst of the debate of dietary cholesterol. And then this, you know, those of us who lived through it, that was like, eat eggs, don't eat eggs, and all this kind of thing. We went back and forth. And whether dietary cholesterol, you know, went along with you know, the levels of cholesterol that we had in our bloodstream, like LDL and HDL. But it it kind of right at that time was also when we were changing the idea of what actually caused an acute coronary plaque and what built up. Uh, because it used to be this very static picture from a scientific standpoint of like, oh, you know, a bunch of crud gets built up slowly over time and then you get a blockage. But now, especially with the statins, we found out that more than anything, it was modulating inflammation rather than actual, you know, cholesterol per se. You'd actually have to have instability of the plaque and then rupture so that you'd have a sudden, you know, clot formation and everything. And this had to do with how cholesterol actually interacted with the walls of the artery and if there was inflammation along with it and all this kind of a thing. And I, I think that is actually what led to, and correct me if I'm wrong, but statins are now used for like acute heart attacks as well, right? There, there is some data that, that you know, right after either, either an intervention when someone right. has like a, well, they used to, you know, when they would do open up the artery um, yeah. or, or the uh, calf. yeah, or after, after an acute acute event, but by and large, they're they're really outpatient medication. Part of understanding that pathophysiology was actually inventing and using statins. <laughs> yep. So that's one of the first, and right off the bat, you know, we we have differences. So I'm gonna do, I think chronologically, and I'm gonna take it back to the old school because I'm an old fool who's so <laughs> cool. If right. you want to lay down and soothe your pain. Yeah, we head to the 1800s and for take some cocaine? close morphine. No. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh, you spit in the face of rhyme scheme. <laughs> so since 1805. Morphine <laughs> and its derivatives have been the most widely used treatment for severe pain with over mm. 230 tons of morphine each year for medical purposes alone. Whoa. <laughs> I've never, ever thought of morphine in, in that unit before. In <laughs> really? Because it always feels like my patients have a pain that can only be solved by a ton of morphine. Oh, no. <laughs> so oh, it, was, it was discovered by uh, Friedrich Wilhelm Adam Surturner, a obscure 
uneducated, unknown 21-year-old pharmacist's assistant with no equipment and a bunch of curiosity. And he was just like, you know, I wonder if opium can do anything medically, uh, which was, you know, fairly widely used by 18th century physicians. And so then he started just doing a bunch of experiments in his spare time. Yeah. And in 1806, he isolated a organic compound from the gum secreted by the opium poppy, which Latin name, Papaver somniferum, the sleepy ah, yes. flower. I, oh. Yes, it, re- it brings back memories of the Wizard of Oz. Remember when uh, yes, 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 the- sleep, sleep, <laughs> falls asleep with the poppies. So he found that if he removed an alkaloid group, there was no effect on animals, but the alkaloid alone had 10 times the power of processed opium. Oh, wow. So okay. in other words, this dude was like freebasing in Sir Turner's lab. And oh. published <laughs> and published a paper on it and was pretty proud of himself. So he, he experimented. He learned its therapeutic effects as well as the dangers. Okay. Uh, I flatter myself, he wrote in 1816, that my observations have explained to a considerable extent the constitution of opium and that I have enriched chemistry with a new acid, meconic, and a new base, morphium, a remarkable substance. <laughs> I'm sure it was. You, of course, very accurately and elegantly said it was an organic compound. Uh, for all you hippies out there, all right, that or, that's organic meaning carbon-based. Not okay. organic as in sold at Whole Foods. Yeah. <laughs> Although it probably would have been uh, upon first discovery because it would have been well, like a, it would have been a plant extract. At the this time. was also made, you know, after we have this pharmacist assistant, just two decades later in 1827, Merck. Just a second, just a second. Pharmacist assistant, pharmacist assistant, pharmacist assistant. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, just two decades later, Merck began marketing in 1827 morphine. Uh, and also the discovery of this alkaloid compound meant researchers soon started looking into other alkaloids like, you know, strychnine in 1817, but more importantly, caffeine in 1820. If there was no morphine, there'd be no caffeine. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah, because caffeine is yet another alkaloid. And the drug, unsurprisingly, soared in usage after <laughs> the hypodermic syringe was invented in 1852. The, the effects of the poppy flower had been known for a long time before this, correct? Because, you know, poppy smoking it or, or using opium yeah. was opium already... Yeah, stuff in, in China. Yeah, yeah. I mean, centuries before. Overdoses from opium are probably more rare simply because nobody's really using opium outside of a certain genre of movie anymore. Sure. The more refined and processed this plant or this compound gets, the more dangerous it becomes. Sure. Of course. Uh, So, of course, buyer began producing and marketing this drug as an analgesic and a sedative for coughs in 1898. And I think we've talked about this before, but because of its heroic ability to relieve pain, they called it (laughs) heroin. Although heroin's a different, uh, that's a different uh, alkaloid or opioid. 
So while the medical profession initially welcomed morphine and then later heroin, uh, the addictive potential was actually quite rapidly recognized. And by 1913, you know, barely a decade later, Bayer halted production, completely edited the drug out of their official company history. <laughs> wow. And focused instead on marketing their second line blockbuster drug, which is the next one on my list in 1899, aspirin. Wow, that, that's interesting. Okay. A little connection there between morphine and aspirin. Or yeah. heroin and aspirin. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So aspirin wouldn't be as popular if uh, heroin wasn't so darn addictive. <laughs> but of course, I... what, what pops into my head with heroin, I always think of the French connection, too, with them getting Popeye Doyle addicted to heroin against his will. And to try to track down the guy that was like dealing or bringing in the heroin into New York. And he ends up getting captured by them. And like they end up like tying him down and getting him addicted to heroin and then he had to oh. go through, like withdraw oh it was i it stuck in my mind i'm like that was like the biggest i'm never going to do drugs because i don't want to end up like popeye doyle in marseille wow okay <laughs> a, no wrong popeye, dude. <laughs> yeah, wrong popeye. The, no the sailor man was doing other things not, not spinach, it, was it was not spinach <laughs> so he's, did you mainlining mainlining spinach <laughs> so did either of you have aspirin on your list of seven drugs that i did you did i, did. <laughs> I, don't. I listed it as asa instead of oh yeah acetosalicylic acid yeah gotcha that's yeah, two yeah. tongue twisters in one episode <laughs> i I didn't, I don't think I had aspirin. I believe I had morphine on there, however, because of, uh, you know, really not just revolutionizing, you know, pain control and this kind of a thing, uh, uh, just an entire class of pain control medications, but also because of the enormous societal impact that, you know, opioids had across the board morphine has shifted geopolitics the way that oil has for instance so yeah. let's talk about aspirin the yeah. it comes from willow bark the willow tree uh however research on it only really started in early 19th century which was driven by napoleon's continental blockade on imports Whoa, okay. <laughs> oh, man, which, I love this. You're which putting affected, together with, with Napoleon. That's awesome. Which affected suppliers of Peruvian cinchona tree bark, another natural source of salicylic acid. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe also quinine, right? Uh, mm -hmm. that's, they believe so. Yeah, it could be. Okay. So they were importing these Peruvian trees, uh, because Napoleon was blockading imports. And so in Germany in 1828, Johann Buchner, a professor at the University of Munich, isolated a yellow substance from the tannin of willow trees that he named salicin, the Latin word for willow. Oh, oh that's where it comes from. Okay. But let's get back to Bayer. In, yeah. in the late 1800s, a clothing dye manufacturing firm in Germany Farbenfracken Vormels, Frederick Bayer and Company, <laughs> began to shift its focus 
from dyes to pharmaceutical production, as I guess a lot of the same lab equipment is necessary. Oh, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, actually, that's probably true because here's another like really random thought. When I took organic chemistry, I remember in organic chemistry lab, we had to, we made actually um, this like orange dye and it was to illustrate like a particular type of reaction that we learned learned about in in uh, class the azo coupling reaction huh. i don't know why I, I remember that but i do and that's really disturbing <laughs> so because the buyer company was already well known it had brand name recognition when it switched over to pharmaceuticals okay very cool um so we go to one of their chemists felix hoffman who the company credits, and there's some controversy around this, but the company credits Felix Hoffman with the synthesis of pure acetosalicylic acid. Arthur Eichengrun, the head of chemical research, who said he had discovered salicylic acid or had been working on it and assigned the task of developing a better one to one of the company's chemists. He was grad studenting him. Sure, sure. <laughs> and a Hoffman, okay. Hoffman had a personal interest in this because his father suffered from rheumatism, but he could no longer ingest just plain old salicylic acid without vomiting. Because it irritates the stomach quite yeah. a bit. Okay. So he found a way to alter the acid chemically by modifying, here you go, Eleanor, the hydroxyl group on the benzene <laughs> ring. As long as we can get the term benzene in here, we're good. Yeah. Uh, the main takeaway from this is that the body could now absorb the compounds without causing stomach upset. Uh, because once ingested, the stomach acid would break it back down to the active ingredient in the stomach, liver, and blood, giving you the desired benefits without any consequences whatsoever until we learned about them in, I don't know, the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> uh, sure. but according to the theory concerning the origin, aspirin comes from the combination of the of the word acetyl, which is one of the modifications you can make, mm -hmm. uh, and the Latin spirea, the genus of plants which contains uh, meadowsweet and salicylic aldehyde, which is a precursor to salicylic acid. Uh, it's the German word for it, spirit, spisaur. Just take my word for it. It's a common, common name, a common ending for drug names at the time. Uh, I think it's spirsaure. There you go. Yeah, I, I, I'm probably butchering that. That's okay. Here we go. Where So, you know, it's another painkiller. It doesn't have anywhere near the addictive potential that morphine does, uh, sure. which is why it's their second line drug. And then in 1915, aspirin becomes available to the public without a prescription. Ooh, okay. Uh, I, I would have loved to have... This is the stuff that I don't really understand is what what's the approval process that a medication like that goes through? Because I'm guessing there was a kind of FDA at that time, like a, a controlling organization. Uh, so... 
Yeah, there was all the way. Yeah, I believe there was all the way back at the turn of the last century. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to know because they'd have to have criteria in place, right? To say this is safe enough that a person can buy it without needing a, you know, a script. I don't know what the policies, what the regulations were back then for over the counter stuff. Sure. So next time you're at Bar Trivia, the oldest over the counter mass market medicine, 1915 aspirin. Hey, <laughs> this is, and so this is why Bayer Pharmaceuticals, like when you see them, like, you know, flashing their logo and everything, they, that's the one that they talk about being like, we've been here since, you know, that kind of We've thing. been here since heroin. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Aspirin. 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 Oh, aspirin. Yeah, aspirin, not heroin. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. We've erased that from our. <laughs> 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 it's not heroin. No, no. Because no, no. I'm imagining like an ad executive coming in, <laughs> just like, you guys, I've got the, <laughs> I've got the slogan. This is going to be the next. Like, just do it by Nike. We've been here since heroin. And like 18 pairs of eyes just turned towards him. Just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Nike has just do it. We're going to say we've been here since heroin. Doug, Doug, (laughs) maybe maybe say aspirin. (laughs) All right. So... So, uh... We're now we're into the 1900s, and oh, yeah. you know aspirin, the greatest thing since sliced bread to hit mass market. But uh, it would only be a few years until we hit what I put as the third drug on my list, and that is insulin. Dun, dun, dun. Yay! Yeah. So, what about you two? Did insulin make your make your seven? In- insulin did make make the list. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, uh, for for me as well, not just because it absolutely shattered what we knew about diabetes. The the fact that you could replace a hormone, like that's insane. And I think even during and before this time of the discovery of insulin, we'd been trying to do this. We've been trying to, you know, replace all kinds of hormones. And and this was one of the first like biologics that came in. So just like, oh yeah, we can just do replacement. Um, but it, it ushered in that entire era and it was kind of an example um, more than anything else. But for sure, like all of a sudden you had an absolutely incurable disease, which was type one diabetes, that autoimmune type that you get when when you're very young because you destroy the cells in your pancreas that make it and you just had a flat out cure that's insane and, and here's why this is important for those of you listening at home individuals with advanced diabetes are unable to produce or respond to sufficient amounts of insulin which is a hormone that turns sugar into energy So before 1922, the only way to treat it was a near starvation diet, like like 450 calories a day. Yeah, it it was awful because, and, and, you know, we didn't have a great understanding of why this was, we just knew that having insanely high blood sugars was bad. And the only way to stop, you know, getting high blood sugars was to stop taking in sugar. So it goes back to, again, Germany, 1869, German medical student Paul Langerhans 
discovered insulin cells in the pancreas. Uh, he named them insulin because they looked like islands and uh, because no man is a longer Hans. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, he, he was longer Hans, though. In 1889, <laughs> 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 two German researchers, Oscar Minkowski and Joseph von Mehring, found that when the pancreas was removed from dogs, the animals became diabetic. This led to the idea that the pancreas is the site where these substances were produced. And in 1910, Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer which is a real name. <laughs> Jingleheimer Schmidt. Right. <laughs> John Jacob Sharpie Schaefer. <laughs> no, Sir Edward Albert oh, wait, Sharpie Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer. <laughs> That's my name too. <laughs> I took the pancreas out and sugars would not shout. Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer. <laughs> Um, so he's actually the one who named uh, <laughs> insulin, meaning island. Um, okay. Although he probably thought to himself, because no man is a longer Hans. No, so. <laughs> no it, it makes sense. It, it came from the isle, uh, the isles of longer Hans, the, the little islet cells, and therefore they're so, all the island, insulin. The next big step was, as we said, 1921, when Frederick Banting and his assistant Best figured out how to actually remove the insulin without taking out the pancreas. And they said it looked like thick brown muck. And with it, they kept another dog with diabetes alive for 70 days. It Ooh. only deceased when there was no more insulin to provide it. Oh, I see. I see. So 1922, we had finally a way to create insulin. Uh, and this led to the Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine. <laughs> For Banting, Best, and two collaborators, Collip and McLeod, who is now immortal in history. And, That's right. Uh, and Banting and, and Best were from Canada. <laughs> and the first genetically engineered synthetic insulin wasn't made until 1978 using E. coli. That was by Eli Lilly, I believe. We now use E. coli all the time like this to just mass produce proteins and small peptides, which insulin is. And they're so neat because you can just basically give them on a plasmid and you can say, hey, just read this stretch of, you know, genetic code and make this, please. And we'll give you all the nutrients you need and you just make a ton of it. And then we'll kill all of you, <laughs> purify the protein. In giant vats, and that's what we do. To remind you of my love. Da 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 yeah. da. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're fattening up the E. coli. The- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, Santosh, I know your number one was penicillin. Eleanor, I'm going to oh, guess yeah. <laughs> that you also had penicillin. Penicillin was actually number three on my list. Number three. Okay, so how about the story <laughs> of penicillin? So he's doctor or the drug expert, whoever thinks <laughs> they've got the better story. Oh, well, you Because know. I think the guy's a slob. Yeah. <laughs> Alexander Fleming, that slob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, the, you're saying he's a slob because of the... 
I, I think it's an apocryphal story, but it, it there is some truth to it that he, you know, was supposed to be, you know, sterilizing these bacterial culture plates. And, um, you know, some of them had been left out and they had become overgrown with yeah. a mold. And we actually do this with, uh, you know, now purified penicillin discs nowadays, but you can place... Uh, you know, the mold down on, a, you know, a lawn of bacteria. And what you'll have around that little bit of growth of mold in the center of the plate is a zone of inhibition where the bacteria can't grow. And, okay, fine. You can say he's a slob because he basically let the damn things get contaminated and it was an oops. But here's where you have a brilliant person like a scientist versus someone who is not. Okay, so the brilliant person um, will look at that plate like Dr. Fleming did, and he said, hey, why is that happening? Why is it that that bacteria can't grow, uh, you know, so close to the, uh, the, the fungus? And, you know, take a look at it. Someone who didn't know what they were doing, Josh, a slob would be like, ah, and, you know, into the, <laughs> into the sink they go and scrub, scrub, scrub. Um, but he, he made an observation, formed a hypothesis, and then from there, the real discovery was after that. Let me, let me uh, give you some context, and then we will turn to Eleanor to tell us about penicillin. Being a scientist and being intelligent does not preclude you being a slob. Fleming was so comfortable with mold and bacteria that he used them outside his lab as well and would occasionally make use of the molds that frequently grew for yeah. painting. He upgraded from watercolors to bacteria in his artistic leisure hour pursuits, making landscapes by growing microbes with different natural pigments. Uh, it also... He had discovered lysozyme, an antibacterial enzyme present in mucus and tears, when he decided to just, you know, let his nose drip into a petri dish to see what happened. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> so, he, so he was sort of like the Bob Ross of bacterial. It's like, there's a happy little fungus over there. I'm going to stick my I... finger up my nose and then paint with it and see what grows <laughs> and what doesn't. That, I will say nowadays your on... Nobel Prize winning. <laughs> <laughs> life-changing <laughs> I, I will say nowadays on reddit and a couple of other you know really wonderful sites tumblr and that kind of thing you can find very very artistic microbiologists who have gorgeous paint by number on you know from bacteria and molds and stuff my favorite actually is a christmas tree um because you can use you know green pigmented bacteria to make your tree and beautiful you know red and pink like serratia uh pigmented bacteria to make the ornaments and such so yeah it's it's become its own little little art farm I stand by my statement. But, <laughs> but Eleanor, what can you tell us about penicillin? Why is it impressive? I mean, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? What's the um, big deal? What's the deal <laughs> with penicillin? School of Eleanor. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, it, it, antibiotics were not sort of my strong suit. And 
in pharmacy school. But what I remember about penicillin is that um, I always think of penicillin in World War II being used to um, for the troops. And I think it also was very effective at treating syphilis, if I recall. It was. And troops and syphilis were two things that you oh, could... Oh, hand in the hand, so to speak. <laughs> and... Uh, the Germans and the Axis partners could only produce very small amounts of penicillin, never enough to meet their military needs. As a result, their soldiers, when injured, would be out of commission longer and had to re rely upon the far less effective sulfonamides, which had a higher side effect profile. They didn't have com combination sulfonamides yet, like we think of trimethoprim sulfa, because they work really well in combination. But if you're using them singly, they're much less bactericidal very quickly on the front end, meaning they, they kill with less efficiency uh, the bacteria. And you're absolutely right. Taking in sulfur, and if you have to take in large amounts of it, our body really doesn't process it well. We're not well evolved to handle sulfur. So, so penicillin actually helped win the war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really did. And it was um, it was kind of interesting. I, I, I have to find this somewhere, but because thankfully, you know, Sir Fleming was here and I believe Churchill became sick at some point with a pneumonia or something like that. And um, I, I have to re-look this up because someone in the comment section will correct me on this. I believe the sulfonamides were discovered first. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, because they were being developed by the Axis powers and he was sick. He was like going to die, this man. And he was, you know, I will not take that Nazi medication, you know, just very much, you know, like absolutely not. I don't care if it works. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the biggest thing for me, Josh, there, there have been a couple of interventions in medicine as a whole that have really changed how a person in general can live or die, and especially impactful in childhood. Number one, by far and away, which was known and then forgotten and then had to be relearned was hand washing. Um, there is no greater intervention in medicine and medical science than hand washing and cleaning. Um, but a, a step just a little bit down from that is antibiotics. All of a sudden, just in, in that one, you know, discovery of the mold by our friend and slob, uh, Dr. Fleming, yes. um, we had a instant, instantaneous 30% drop in mortality. Uh, that's, that's madness, you know, to say that you just all of a sudden, one third of the people who would have died from pneumonia or sepsis or something like that, just boom, it's gone. Uh, and that you means just that, them. I don't know, like around 75% of people today would not be alive without it because your ancestors would have succumbed to infection. Oh, huge. It was pen penicillin in this. And then prior to this, uh, you know, nitrogen fixation, where we actually learned to fix nitrogen and, and grow crops much quicker. We've saved billions of lives. Honey, um, the nitrogen's broken again. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, so yeah. Fleming, despite being a slob, I will yeah. credit him with he was concerned about the development of antibiotic resistance. Now, in yeah. classic uh, 
film movie scientist thing. You know, he invented this drug that changed the world and then spent quite a lot of time not campaigning against it, but he be careful. He (laughs) did say in a Nobel lecture, he cited underdosing by ignorant members of the public as the principal (laughs) danger. Yes. Uh, The microbes then become more educated than those taking them. And they become resistant to penicillin and a host of penicillin fast organisms is bred out. And in such cases, the thoughtless person playing with this compound is morally responsible for the death of the man who succumbs to infection with the resistant organism. I hope this evil can be averted. And then what happens? We end up with Godzilla. (laughs) (laughs) No, he knew. Well, and and this is one of those things where you can't see this with all medications. I'm sure, Eleanor, you can tell me in vivo or in vitro. But with antibiotics, because you're (laughs) acting on the, the bugs themselves and you can see it in a Petri dish, he could see the dose dependent changes in the bacteria right there in front of him. So he was not talking about some theoretical risk. You know, he he saw it right there. He could evolve antimicrobial resistance rapidly in his lab. And then so he was just saying, if this is happening in my Petri dish, it's going to happen when you give this to other people. Um, I, I will say one really cool thing about penicillin, and I'm glad that this was the one that made it big because it has one massive advantage. Penicillin does not get chemically altered from ingestion to circulation to excretion. Okay. So it does its thing and then you pee it out, you know, just like intact. And around the time when penicillin was being discovered and now it was being highly used post World War II and it was really, really important, you didn't have enough, right? You couldn't manufacture it in large batches. So what do you do? Well, you create the pee patrol. Oh, yeah, you're right. You create the pee patrol uh, for penicillin and for pee. And pee patrol is going to go around and collect massive amounts of of pee. (laughs) They're going to send it over to the distillery and they're going to crystallize the penicillin out of the urine and clean it up. And boom, bada boom, you've got a recycled penicillin ready to go out to the public. Penicillin. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, oh, by the way, you know, you were talking about sulfonamides before. <clears throat> you are you are correct that sulfonamides were the first antibacterial, and take yeah. a guess who manufactured them. Oh, was it good there? old fire again? They erased heroin, but then they have aspirin, and now so, uh, yeah. sulfonamide, which they call Prontosil. Oh yes, because the, old, the very first pronto. one. Because we'll get it to you fast. Pronto. Yes. <laughs> uh, crazy, right? Crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and speaking of crazy, yeah, moving yeah. on to my number five, chlorpromazine, the very first antipsychotic drug. Uh, did it make either of your lists? It did not make my list. Isn't that crazy? It didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. It's um, madness, I tell you. Madness. madness. <laughs> I'll tell you, I didn't have uh, chlorpromacine as an antipsychotic on my list, but I had something sort of similar, Josh, because it had the same kind of sudden impact on a neurological disease, and that was actually levodopa. 
Ah, uh, um, yeah. From yeah. Oliver Sacks, because that was similarly, you had this horrible, you know, neurological disorder, <laughs> which, you know, that nobody could ever recover from. And it was just, that's it. This person's gone. They're a ghost. Their soul is gone. And, you know, in the book and movie Awakenings, it shows, oh my gosh, no, you can, you can bring them back from the dead almost. That is a pretty impressive one, but affects only that one particular subset of the population. Yes, uh, that's true. So here's why I'm going to argue this is one of our seven change the world drugs. <laughs> 1950s, uh, December 11th, 1951. Was the day that we'll live in infamy. <laughs> I mean, in France. Paul Charpentier in the laboratories of the... Okay, look, I'm just going to put this out there. I'm terrible at pronouncing French, so... Rhone Poulenc. Okay. Paul Charpentier in the laboratories of the Rhone Poulenc, a French pharmaceutical company, first created chlorpromazine, but it wasn't recognized for as it... It was not recognized for its use in psychiatry until a year later by a surgeon, Henri Laborit, a physiologist in the French, a surgeon and physiologist in the French army. And what he was looking for was to induce artificial hibernation in the prevention of surgical shock. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So he employed the drug as an adjunct to anesthesia because of its body temperature lowering effect, which I was not aware it had. Did you know that, Eleanor? I believe I did know that. Yes. Quite interesting. Okay. So, and he found that chlorpromazine or CPZ in the dosage of 50 to 100 milligrams produced disinterest without loss of consciousness and only a slight tendency to sleep. As oh. in, Sacre bleu, you're sawing off my leg! Here, have this. That's going to make it tougher to get around. Le bummer. Le bummer. <laughs> Le sai. The very first paper on chlorpromazine was published in the February 13th issue of La Presse Medicale with the title, A New Vegetative Autonomic Stabilizer. Hmm. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Uh, Jacques L.H., a 24-year-old severely agitated, psychotic, manic male, was the very first psychiatric patient to receive the drug. He was administered 50 milligrams at 10 a.m. on January 19, 1952, the calming oh, wow. effect was immediate, <laughs> but it lasted, since it only lasted a few hours, which is how they calculated the half-life as a psychiatric dosage, several treatments were required, but after 20 straight days of treatment with a total of 855 milligrams of CPZ, the patient was ready to exit the hospital and resume normal life. Wow. Uh, okay. And it was believed, as we mentioned, those body temperature lowering effects, it's believed the drug worked by inducing artificial hibernation. So ice packs were used with the drug to enhance cooling. Oh, oh, oh okay, gotcha. So at, at this time, they were correlating the drop in body temperature with the calming effect. While looking for something that would make people hibernate, you know, like bears from a few episodes back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Please go back uh, if you haven't listened to our episode about bears. It's very good. It's totally radical. <laughs> uh, 
don't Winnie the Pooh poo that joke. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> fluorpromazine became available for prescription in France in 1952 of November. So really a short time between between making the drug. Synthesis. <laughs> Thank you. Between synthesis, marketing, and prescription, and it was given the name large actyl for being large in action. <laughs> you know, we actually had a really wonderful episode a while back, and Josh, that you did some beautiful reading on how drugs get named like this and the rules behind it. I think right now this naming would actually break our current rules because you're not allowed to say how good it is, uh, you know, in the name. So that's very it didn't say good. It says large in action because it covered a wide variety of things from surgery to oh, psychiatric treatment. Still, it kind of it oversells it a little bit, but it, it does actually have quite a broad action. You're right. And were it not for that, or it was really the very first treatment of anything for mental health besides mm. just locking people away in rooms with padded walls and jackets that let you hug yourself. Yeah. So this really opened up mental health illness as a treatable condition and stimulated the development of a wide variety of other psychotropic drugs. Uh, this led to recognition of chemical mediation at the synapse and receptor assays that it blocks dopamine receptors. And once they discovered the dopamine receptors, well, now we can talk about your Parkinson's drug and a wide variety of others that act on. It, it was a, I understand what you're saying. It was kind of a break into not just, you know, the brain, because we had had anti-epileptics and stuff to this point, you know, to treat seizures. But the idea that you could actually affect cognition like this uh, or, you know, attitude, personality, whatever you wanted to call it. This was supposed to be a very sacred thing about who we were. And it, it was a little jarring as well, as well, you know, um, along with being revolutionary, this idea that like you could change the personality, like you could change the person with the medication, like, oh my God, <laughs> you know? So it was really a mini revolution in neurocognitive science. We're going to pause here for a random commercial break. Random commercials because I don't actually know what's about to follow this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We'll Thanks see you in just a moment. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And we're back. If we decided to cut this into a second episode, 
Hello and welcome back to Travel Medicine. As always, I am still your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Ah, is, as, and was your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher, Dr. Santosh. And I'm your legal drug person, friendly <laughs> pharmacist, Eleanor. <laughs> so uh, when last we left, we were talking about seven drugs that had changed the world. Oh, I didn't sing it this time. Uh, you have to oh. sing it. You have to sing it. We were talking about seven drugs that changed the world. And we had made it through five from my list. How many from yours, Eleanor? Uh, we've made it through four. Okay. And Santosh, from yours? I got three. All right. So uh, I'm in the lead for the moment. But let's <laughs> see. Let's see where else we can get. So... For me, coming in at number six, we've made it through World War II. We've made it through the 50s, now starting to treat mental health. 1960s, uh, the decade of love, and most importantly, another life-changing medication, the pill. This is what I love about this. And yeah, you know, we've got listeners from all over the planet, but in English, at least, you don't even need to say what the pill is. That's how impactful this drug was. <laughs> you don't get that kind of marketing. No. Uh, but the birth control pill is yeah. actually a, an older concept. And of course, some form of birth control dates all the way back even to ancient Egypt. But I'm talking about actual medications around that we know, that we make, that we see in our everyday lives. And in the early 1920s, Germans, again, they... Good job, Germany. Just head on the back to you. <laughs> well, it was it was a all of this came from organic chemistry, right? And so you had certain hubs around the world when you talked about particular disciplines and sciences. And Austria specifically was really a center for organic chemistry. And when it came to biochemistry after that and drug making, there you go. So Austrian scientist Ludwig Haberland published a paper suggesting that hormones could be used as an effective means of contraception in animals. And he may have soon after tested a hormone preparation in clinical trials, despite heavy, heavy criticism from colleagues who considered contraception to be, uh, at best, taboo. Mm. Um in 1921, he demonstrated a temporary hormonal contraception in a female animal by transplanting ovaries from a second pregnant animal. Mm. In 1923, okay. after some further successful work, he began highlighting the importance of clinical trials and presentations. So he's really putting out evidence-based medicine in the early 1920s, and was almost immediately and repeatedly criticized and harassed by his colleagues who accused him of hindering unborn life. Yeah. And so this kind of gives us a bit of historical perspective that this type of argument and, you know, whatever side of whatever political spectrum or anything you're on, this has a long history. This is From not a literally the moment thing. it was created. From the moment Absolutely. of conception. Thank oh. you. Thank you, Eleanor. I'm glad somebody <laughs> took that idea and brought it to term. Oh, boy. <laughs> so 
This idea was contradictory to the moral, ethic, religious, and political agendas of that time in Europe. Uh, official reports escalated. His family was ostracized. He refused any interviews. And despite this, he was still doing clinical trials in the 1930s after a successful production of a preparation in Fikundin yeah, by the G. Richter Company in Budapest, Hungary, uh, preventing mm. fecundity. At the peak of his scientific career, he was basically blacklisted because of the disputed contraception project and unfortunately harassment and uh, career blacklisting caught up with him and he committed suicide on July 1932. And then nothing was said about contraception until the 1970s. Wow. Beginning in the 1950s, birth control advocate Margaret Sanger asked researcher Gregory Pincus to develop an effective contraceptive funded by the famous heiress Catherine McCormick. Uh, Pincus, wow. now remember, we talked about all this being discovered in 1920s in Austria. Pincus found that progesterone helped to stop ovulation and managed to develop a trial pill. And this was tested in 1954 and 1955 in a couple preliminary Boston trials, a proof of concept. But they weren't going to be able to get it to the public without large-scale human trials because it wouldn't get FDA approval. Sure, sure. Yeah, you can't pilot, you know, with these tiny little populations like this for something that's going to be so ubiquitously used. You know, 50% of the population effectively is a, has a market. So we have this great idea, you know, first an Austrian scientist saying, hey, you know, here's a way that we can just decrease birth in a way we can control. And then in the 50s, you have women campaigning to say, we need an effective hormonal contraceptive. We need to have choice. She finds another person to fund it. They get a working pill, but it's not going to get approval without large-scale human trials. All a lovely story could be a movie like Air. Except, oh, I got to bring this idea down to earth. Here's where <laughs> things start to get a little controversial. Yeah. Ah, yes. <laughs> Another longer Hans thing is coming into play here. Okay, yeah. <laughs> are you familiar with the story, Eleanor? A little bit. A um, little bit. You are welcome to, to fill in any gaps in my knowledge, but in 1955, Pincus went to Puerto Rico, one of the most densely populated areas in the world, and officials supported birth control as a form of population in the hope that it would stem Puerto Rico's endemic poverty. So unlike the rest of the continental U.S., there were no anti-birth control laws on the books. And he was impressed with the extensive network of birth control clinics already in place on the island. 67 clinics using existing methods. Clinical trials were then conducted without informed consent or uh, mention of side effects in this yeah. drug that had really only been tested mostly on animals and on a couple volunteers. Yeah, it, yeah, it's sort of like the Tuskegee experiment in a way of Puerto Rico. It's it's a little disturbing. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it, and the only thing that you could, oh, no, you can't, you can't justify this in any kind of a way. Um, but at, at the very least, you know, with with the Tuskegee, you were refusing to treat people. Yeah, yeah. You know, for you, know, you were you were killing them in that case. Yeah. This one, if you know the and birth control pills can certainly have some 
scary effects actually in the way of uh, you know deep vein thrombosis and this kind of thing. But if the if it had turned out that the side effect profile had been any different or you know any worse, this could have become you know quite uh, genocidal in a sense. So because you're actually actively giving out a medication in this case instead of withholding something. Yeah, true. So. Dr. Idris Rice Ray, a faculty member of the Puerto Rico Medical School and director of the Family Planning Association, was in charge of the trials. In this sense, it was self-selected. It was only given to people who were already coming to these birth control clinics. Um, That doesn't necessarily make it better because you still don't have informed consent. But they're not just randomly distributing it to... I would say a 100% unaware populace, only a 95% unaware. Sure. As in, you're not like putting it in the water or something crazy right. like that. These yeah. are people who are coming for birth control. They are giving birth control. They are just giving untested birth control. And after a year of tests, Dr. Rice Ray reported that the pill was 100% effective when taken properly, and that 17% of the women in the study complained of nausea, dizziness, headaches, stomach pain, and vomiting. Rock and Pincus listened carefully to Rice Ray's conclusions and observations and said, eh, our patients in Boston didn't have those negative reactions. This is probably just psychosomatic from a bunch of crazy women. And they also felt that problems like bloating and nausea are minor compared to all the contraceptive benefits of the drug. <laughs> this is, you know, and if you want any other evidence of sexism in medicine I was say, talk <laughs> about like rampant like, misogyny with this whole oh yeah oh you'll be <laughs> fine and you know and it, it also turns the whole thing on its head <laughs> like oh women aren't tough and this guy oh come on now you know the things that they the poor things they had to put up with and now you know and, and eleanor you can probably tell us you know we're getting into uh, male contraception, actually, hormonal contraception recently. And they're unlike, you know, when this was introduced for women way back when, the outcry from men about the side effects is so... <laughs> I demand I am, more clinical trials. I, I am embarrassed <laughs> and sad to be part of this group that's supposed to be so macho. <laughs> so these benefits far outweighed any minor psychosomatic issues. And the drug was released by G.D. Cyril and Co. as Enovid. And it came out in 1960 with FDA approval, which was granted because the risk of pregnancy, as we said, was seen as greater than the risk of side effects like blood clots and strokes. Yeah, those are minor issues, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unish- well, and, well, initially... This- Available only to married women and burdened with a 27.5% luxury tax. Yeah, (laughs) so bad. I, I, and here's, there is a little bit of a, you know, weirdness here, which is, you know, it's important for recent times. You know, the the vaccine causes these problems in the clock and nobody went back and we're like, you know, we should maybe fix contraception for women because (laughs) the the problem seems to be on the other side of things. Um, you know, it reminded me actually of when we were having these horrible blowouts of tires with these SUVs, specifically with these SUVs. And everyone was going around saying, oh, those, you know, 
Michelin tires or horrible or whatever they were. And it was, but no, nothing was happening except if you put it on this insane monster of an SUV. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, guys, come on, we got to figure this out. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's not fair because I, I think with a little bit of development and funding that we could really fix a lot of the problems with, you know, with current, you know, uh, hormonal contraception and make it a lot safer. Well, it is pretty safe today. I mean, when it started out with these older formulations, they were using much, much higher um, doses of estrogens. And, you know, over time, we've, you know, we've lowered and lowered and lowered the dose of estrogen to pretty minimal levels um, now. But yeah, yeah, some of the issues that that were more early on associated with contraception, like the stroke and DVTs, that was that was due to a much much higher doses of estrogen. Not that it hasn't been reported with these low dose formulations, but it is the the risk benefits very different today. That is number six. The last one, I don't have a long story about, but I do feel still pretty important. Uh, and that was in the 1990s, protease inhibitors, which of oh, course yeah. was the very first drugs used to treat HIV infections. And that combined, although they weren't the first HIV drugs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, he was. Yeah. Um, but combined with AZT, for the first time, mm-hmm. doctors could keep HIV levels so low that patients never developed AIDS. And we took what had been a lethal disease and turned it into a condition that people can actually have pretty normal lives with yep uh, i would agree with that so yeah, that is as well so i don't have a big fancy historical story <laughs> about it i just want to the major thing that the development of protease inhibitors showed and along with uh azt before that and it kind of reflects also in in the modern COVID era it shows how quickly and amazingly the scientific community and meaning the world scientific community can advance understanding treatment and prognosis when you pay attention to a problem, when you fund it properly, and when you put enough minds behind it. I mean, we move so fast. The explosion of HIV medications and the point where we got from discovery of a virus all the way to control was neck-breakingly fast. It was it was insane. Um, and, and again, it happened with COVID. And then the world community came together and development of mRNA vaccines all the way to treatment. Uh, I am constantly amazed at our ability as human beings to do this when we are willing to put in the time and effort and yes, the money and the money (laughs) and the money to do this and, and recognize that like, Hey, you know, if we just spend a concentrated amount of time and money on something and say, Hey, this is important. We can basically just fix it. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. This was supposed to be the impossible virus. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just a couple of decades. Boom. Normal life. Speaking of that, that was something that did make my list was just vaccines in general. I oh, think yeah. game changer um, that would make the list. Um, another one that I was surprised that you didn't have on the list was Viagra. 
Uh oh, that's true. <laughs> I think that's on on some of these top ten lists, top seven lists too. But did it change the course of human history? <laughs> Yeah. Well, that depends um, on the gender you're talking to. I, I probably, yeah. There, I'll say this: that I don't know of any other drug. Maybe Eleanor, maybe you can tell me that made it from like production to worldwide recognition so goddamn fast. <laughs> you have ED. Yeah, that was no, 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 but and. You know, of course, beautifully that like, you know, this started off as a, you know, thing to help us with pulmonary hypertension and breathe better and this kind of thing. It's like, hey, by the way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) By the way, I noticed. uh, Oh, really? Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And he told his doctor. Yeah. And there's and I have one other little pharmaceutical tidbit to to mention if if i may by all means so this is not necessarily well this is actually an individual who i think changed the world of in pharmacology um Mm. and for two drugs that were also real game changers have you ever heard of sir james black no sir Uh, james black Black? b-l-a-c-k yes sir james black um, okay. He worked for SmithKline French, now GlaxoSmithKline. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and he or his group, he was a pharmacologist, and he was responsible for the uh, creation of two medications: uh, propranolol or Indorol, one of the first beta blockers that was a game changer in terms of managing angina. Um, so, and one of the most widely prescribed medications in the world. And he also eventually went on to develop the first H2 blocker, cimetidine, known as Tagamet. There you go. <laughs> and that was actually the very first blockbuster medicine. Um, yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It, it was the first one that was advertised, I guess. Uh, I think blockbuster has to do with its total sales of like, you know, oh, over a million or something got it, got like it. that. But, but obviously, H2 blockers, that was a huge game changer in terms of management of ulcers those those pesky ulcers that plagued uh aspirin way back when yeah <laughs> here since heroin here's <laughs> heroin <laughs> right oh so yes i had to mention sir james black with h2 antagonists and beta blockers that's okay i i will definitely look him up he sounds like a wonderful person yep so those are your seven, Eleanor. Those are my seven, or let's see, one, two, three. So four, let's five, let's eight. in case people forgot from the beginning, what what yeah. are your drugs? So my my selections were Lipitor or the HMG coreductase inhibitors, aspirin, penicillin, insulin, protease inhibitors, and then I had also vaccines in general. Uh, I mentioned Viagra, and then of course the the little extra tidbits are James Black with the H two antagonists and and beta blockers. And Santosh, did we cover all of yours? I think we just about. I I did have morphine on there. Uh, I had insulin and penicillin, so those were the three that um, we had in common. Um, I I didn't have protease inhibitors, but I actually had AZT as a, a you know nucleoside uh, you know transcriptase inhibitor um, 
I'm trying to actually recall uh, my other two, and I cannot remember them for the life of me off the top of my head. But I believe. Oh, sorry, sorry. They were in. They were in pediatrics. That's right, because they they really changed the course of, you know, what we thought about actually taking care of, um, you know, babies. And the first one was surfactant. Ah, and, yeah. and that completely changed everything that we thought that, you know, how to support life in, in premature infancy. And, and it, you know, was an, an instant game changer in terms of at what age we could support life and have a, a child grow up to be healthy, um, even if they were premature. And I, I had the other thought which was because moms also get beta methasone, which is a steroid. And so up there was actually steroids. Um, the, the ubiquity of steroids in medicine right now and everything that it did. And, um, you know, and the fact that, you know, the other medications, a lot of them that we talked about, like the pill, uh, that in fact is a steroid hormone. And so, um, I mean, broadly, it was very, very broad to just stay like oh, steroids like that. Um, so it was maybe something like prednisone. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, of course, tilted more in terms of pediatrics. I think the very first time I talked to you about it, I named all antibiotics and you were like, no. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like, what are the seven most important? He's like, penicillin. And then Cipron's just like, no, no, no. Classes of drugs. He's like, uh, tetracyclines, penicillins. Um. <laughs> yeah. I was, and I, I actually realized that I could do it because even though we discovered classes of, you know, antibiotics after penicillin, the idea was pretty much the same. Uh, after penicillin, it wasn't really a groundbreaking thing to take a antibacterial molecule from, you know, a, another bacteria or a fungus and examine its effects on a on a bacteria um, and and killing it that way. So it, I'm so it really 18. wasn't very. Real. I'm so yeah. eighteen ninety eight. You're nineteen hundred and late. <laughs> uh, and you know what i'm pretty sure that's what uh alexander fleming said to everybody <laughs> no that's that's not true he was famously famously a very humble gentleman um and i do want to give a shout out because um he was kind of an example of i think what a lot of scientists should be. He didn't seek to patent uh, or anything this medication. He wanted this discovery to be available to the world. Um, and I'm not saying anything against making money, but you know that type of generosity was absolutely amazing. And it it was part of what contributed to how life saving penicillin was. Probably just felt embarrassed because he's like, wow, uh, all this because I forgot to clean up after myself when I went on vacation. Stop, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> I, I feel I feel like an old, like a, like a mom, like a, you, you don't listen to him, honey. You do your thing. You don't, you don't, don't need listen to, to clean. the bad man. You don't need to clean your room, Alexander. <laughs> The next Nobel could be in there. Why? Why is he from Staten Island all of a sudden? <laughs> <laughs> 
Don't go inside, honey. Don't listen to them. You, well, yes, you, you got that. in garbage, honey. You're a scientist. Uh, you're a scientist. He, he wrote the book, you know, because he's from New York, because, uh, you know, he wrote that book of Fungus Grows in Brooklyn. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That, that, that's it. I think you won the episode, Eleanor. So uh, <laughs> that's it for this week. Let us know on the socials or in comments or if you recognize us on the street. Creepy, but awesome. Um, <laughs> let us know what your choice is for the seven drugs that change the world are to you. And next time we can come back and maybe try medical devices uh, or... Maybe we come back with seven antibiotics. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> uh, we talk about antibiotics a lot, actually, on this podcast, mainly because of my uh, bad influence. But uh, yeah, I'd love to do that. We will also have to take our pharmacist back into space to <laughs> cover what's new in uh, non-terrestrial medicine. Yeah, I, I think we're very close. I, I think Eleanor will agree to this as well, that we're very close to putting you know, a, a permanent colony somewhere, uh, whether it ends up being the moon or Mars. So we're going to have to learn some fast lessons about how to care for people um, with medication and surgery in, in different space environments. Yep. And we're woefully unprepared. <laughs> oh, oh, no. And then, and then think about it. You get to choose seven drugs that change the moon. The space. The moon. That's going to be the next, you know, like, I'm going to, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to change the moon, mom. <laughs> I'm a rocket man. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Get out of this one horse town and change the moon. (laughs) Is he saying what? Yes. Just move along. (laughs) I'm going to wipe this dusty regolith off my boots. (laughs) So join us next time when we return to space. Like an aspiring Broadway actor from Kansas. <laughs> I don't know why I gave him that personality, but okay. <laughs> okay. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. Special thanks to Eleanor for joining us and lending her expertise again. Yay! And as always, until next time, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, find a place to go where you can share all those things. And once you've done all that, happy travels. Change the moon, people. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.